time, this doesn't look as attractive as it once did because you're fixing your eyes on the things of the kingdom. I'm just talking about a thousand that have a vision for their heart. They've got passion for God. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life. But raise your hands with me and let's pray together. Father, we love you so much. And we are not here because we like each other. We're here mostly because we're in love with you. You're the one that unites us. You're the one that we worship. You're the one that has saved us. You're the one that redeemed us. You're the one that put our feet upon a solid place instead of the muck and the mire of sin. You're the one who's returning for us. You're the one who's gonna take us forever to be with you. You're the one that's going to rule and reign forever and ever. And we would rather be nowhere else than spending time worshiping you, declaring your kingdom to come on the earth and studying your word. We love you, we love you. And everybody said amen. Hey, how'd Dan Perkins do last week? He's a good preacher, isn't he? Yeah. I, uh, I want to talk tonight. We're going to start a new series called Fight for Your Friends. And I'm going to start telling you a little story about Dan Perkins, all right? Dan Perkins, uh, when he's my brother. And um, when I was a 10th grader and he was a 5th grader, we had a basketball court in front of our house. And uh, it was because we were dreaming. <clears throat> so that's what hobbits do is we dream about the NBA. Um, <laughs> But never arrive. And so, anyway, uh, although we've had our fair share of victories, just for the record, go Nuggets. So, uh, anyway, but uh, so, so Dan and I are playing basketball, and we used to play with this kid named Jack. And so, Jack was the neighbor kid, and Jack was my size, uh, but he was like, he was two years younger. It's not, that's not funny, that's just true. And uh, then Dan, he's five years younger than me. And so, Fifth grader, 10th grader, and then Jack was an eighth grader, maybe ninth grader. I don't know, but he's one or two years younger than me. But Jack was a little bit, he's actually a little bit taller than me. Uh, I try to say the same size, but whatever, uh, give or take, three or four inches. Um, but anyway, so we were, playing, we were playing ball one time. So you can imagine, I'm a 10th grader. I'm a lot older than my little brother, you know, fifth grade. And Dan wasn't that big for his age. I mean, now he's huge, but back then he, was, he wasn't that big for a fifth grader. And we're playing ball, and there's a moment where just out of nowhere, Jack gets mad and Jack hauls off and just attacks me. I mean, literally, I mean, we're just playing. You know me, I mean, I'm keeping the rules. I'm, I'm a good kid. But uh, out of nowhere, I mean, seriously, we're playing ball, it gets aggressive and it got aggressive. I and mean, we'd usually have, we'd play every night and we'd have like literally the whole street. We'd have got fellas playing ball. And, and uh, so Jack hauls off and he just does one of these where he just, he takes his, he just takes his shoulder like this and just clocks my chin like that, knocks me back, I hit the ground. And, uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the littlest kid on the court, fifth grader, or he comes out, and I'm telling you, like I have never seen the man who preached last week comes out and he starts winning. He's like, "How dare you hit my brother? I'll take you out, man! I'll get you back!" He's like, "No way! Nobody messes with my brother! I'm in high school. He's a fifth grader, and he comes to my defense like you can't. He's just, and I'm sitting there on my butt. Just, I just love my brother right then. I'm like." Dude, shut up. He's going to kill you. <laughs> He's going to kill you. Shut up, man. But deep inside of my heart, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. All of us love it when someone fights for us. I'll never forget when I was uh, pursuing Renata. We were mm, 20 years old, and I, I thought she was just the greatest thing ever. And so I was after her, like I was trying to ask her out and pursue her. And, uh, her parents, they were expecting someone tall, dark, and handsome to court their daughter. And so uh, when I came along, it wasn't quite what they had expected. And I'll never forget one time just listening to her, just tell her parents about how great I was. And they were like, well, we're not so sure. And she just fought for me. And I was like, yes. And I was sitting back just loving it. 
Love that. I love, I, I, I love being fought for. I, a few years, probably six, seven years ago, there was a moment in the furnace where one of the, one of the leaders, one of the guys, he got real mad at me. I mean, mad. I mean, like red face mad at me. And, um, you know, it's, it's one thing to like, you know, lead really young people. But when you're leading, you know, college guys that are, you know, six foot something and bench press a lot more than me, uh, and all of a sudden, they're just, they're just mad. Like, it's, it's a little bit scary. And um, I'll never forget, there was a great moment. We were over here at the Pikes Peak Community College. And uh, a bunch of the furnace leaders, like maybe five or six of them, these are my buds. When this guy came at me, I mean, these guys came to my defense like, I, like I've never experienced. I mean, they were just, it was like, it was like the guy was going to have to go buy like a steel curtain to get to me. I mean, it was just cool. It was awesome. And I just, I was just standing there, you know, all foot five of me, just loving life. Like I got the fellas right here. They're going to take care of me. And they fought for me. And in the tough moment, when things were rough, they fought for me. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I think that there's something comes alive in our hearts when someone fights for us. And when we see when we see someone really being fought for, for what's right. This week I watched the video, the, the, the new Heartwork video that, um, that Corey put together. And on it, you have the, the, the moment where Kirby is standing in Uganda and he looks at Ruth and he begins to tell a widow that she'll never have another need, that, they'll take care, that we'll take care of her for the rest of her life, that her children will never have another need and man, something came alive in my heart sitting there just watching the video on the internet. And I go, man, I love that. Something comes alive in my heart when, there's a, when a Kirby Patterson is fighting for this widow and fighting for her children. It's what came alive in your hearts when over and over again over the last few years, a, 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 one of the core convictions here within TAG is that we're gonna fight for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow in Isaiah 58. And your heart comes alive because you're fighting for someone. And your life's bigger than just you. Your life is bigger than just you being popular, you being rich, you being cool, you getting a good education, you being an athlete, you wearing cool clothes, you doing whatever the thing is. Something comes alive in your heart when you fight for something bigger than yourself. And so I'm just looking back tonight and I'm I'm thinking about this idea of fighting for your friends. And I want to talk to you about the real battle that goes on over your friends, and they're looking for someone. They're looking for someone that will fight for them. If you have your Bibles, go to Mark chapter two. Mark chapter two, if you don't, you can look up on the screen, I'll read it to you. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic, paralyzed person, carried by four of them, say four. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, say digging. After digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith. And when Jesus saw the desperate condition of the paralyzed man, no. And when Jesus saw the faith of the man on the, on the mat, No. And when Jesus saw their creative capacity, no. And when Jesus saw their faith, four men, four guys, four fellas, 
four guys, four men, four guys, four fellas holding paralyzed man. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So I want you to imagine this story. Here's Jesus, and Jesus is sitting in a home. Now, in Palestine, you would have flat roofs. You know, today we have a lot of roofs that are like this, but in that culture, they would have flat roofs, and there would be literally a, uh, the, a there would be stairs on the side of the house. And so... Uh, Jesus is sitting there, and in a typical Palestinian home, they, scholars guess that about 50 people could fit in the main room. And so there's Jesus, and he's sitting there, and you probably have about 50 people in the house, and then you have however many could fit outside and still here. And so Jesus is sitting there, and he's teaching. And so he is declaring who he is. You guys know very well the kinds of things he's saying, that the kingdom of God is coming to the earth. He's telling them who he is. He's using all kinds of parables and different stories to proclaim who he is. He's sitting there and he's telling the stories and he's Jesus. He's right there. And there's people everywhere. There's people all throughout the house. There's people outside. There's people everywhere. And so you can imagine what happens when a paralyzed man who lays on a mat. Now, in this culture, today, we have lots of uh, ways to help paralyzed people, and there's lots of sensitivities. But in that day, the paralyzed were seen as worthless and were literally, literally the outcasts of society. And so, not only was this a physical problem, but he, it also meant that he was probably a beggar. Most uh, paralytics in that age were beggars. So, their sole source of income was strictly to beg. That was probably what happened with this man. And so he's laying out there in the streets, and can you imagine the joy and the thrill of his heart when four friends, four friends, take his mat, one on each pole, and they head to where Jesus is. I don't know how they hold it. You know, they go, they get there. And when they get there, I don't know what the conversation is like, but certainly it's a little bit difficult when you get there and you're trying to take your friend to Jesus and you can't get into the house because all of a sudden there's such a large crowd to hear the man who saves, the man who redeems, the man who heals, the man who turns, you know, the man who literally turns a couple fish and bread into a meal for thousands, the guy who calms the storms. I mean, this guy's a popular guy. And you get there and all of a sudden there's major disappointment. And, and uh, what I have found in working with people a lot of times is that's where we stop. We're desperate, you know, theoretically for our friend to know Christ until we hit a barrier. And the moment we hit a barrier, we're done. The moment we hit a barrier, well, I tried that, did my duty, my social duty, yay unto God, yay unto that guy, whatever, I'm done. It didn't work out. I tried. Check the box. And yet, There's some tenacity. There's something that's going on in the heart of these four guys where when all of a sudden there's a crowd there, it doesn't hinder them. It doesn't stop them. They look at each other. Should we leave them in the street? No. What are we going to do? I don't know. You got any ideas? I don't know. Should we like start some fireworks and try to scare people? 
No, it's not legal and fireworks haven't been invented yet. Well, what are we gonna do? Should we wait here till nightfall? No way, dude. I gotta get some dinner. Well, what are we gonna do? I got an idea. What if we climb on the roof and mess up and dig a hole in the guy's house? I promise you, those four guys, when the first guy said that, one of them looked at and said, you're such an idiot. And the, it's like, I'd look at Ty, Tyrell said, I said, Tyrell, the dumbest idea I've ever heard. We're not gonna, this is Jesus. Destruct, destructing property might, you know, get like, might turn us into lepers or something for doing that. Stand around, well, I'm desperate. You desperate? Well, I don't know what to do. Well, do you know what to do? I don't know what to do. Well, what are our options? Well, we certainly don't want the man to literally be unhealed. And we know, we have faith. We know that Jesus is a person that heals. You really think that Jesus will be mad if we destroy our roof? Yeah, no, yeah, no, let's take a vote. I say, let's go for it. Our best idea is to dig a hole in the roof. That's our best idea. I, they literally take this guy, go to the top of the roof, Dig a hole in, most scholars think that Peter's house because it's Capernaum. Most people think this is Peter's house. We don't really know, but maybe, right? If you're Peter, what? Got my house, man. They dig a hole. Drop down their paralyzed friend. And I, I have, no, I have no idea what this moment's like. I mean, I've seen it in Jesus movies, you know. That's all, but but when I, that's all I know. But when I picture this moment, I think this, I think this is a comical moment. Because I, it's got to be a little bit strange all of a sudden having a man lowered into the room. So Jesus is just sitting there preaching and he's, you know, you know blessed is this, blessed is the that, you know, whatever. You're the salt of the earth. He's talking and all of a sudden... Looks like an earthquake. Who knows what's happening? And then a man's coming down. <laughs> and, and, and in order to lower him down, you know the four guys are still on the roof, right? Right? I mean, that's, they got to lower him down. Are you with me? So I can, I'm just picturing, if you're looking down at Jesus, and Jesus is looking up, and you're looking down, and you're like his friends, and you're like lowering him down, and Jesus looks up at you. What? I mean, can you imagine? Those, uh, you know... <laughs> We know you're God. What's up? Everybody's holding their breath. Think he's going to buy this? I don't know. The fun part about the story is that Jesus responds. Jesus responds. So Jesus sees the faith of the friends, this paralyzed man. Your sins are forgiven. And it's so intriguing to me that the scripture makes really clear it's his friends, it's their faith. And then Jesus heals him. And, and when I think about this story, I just, I, I celebrate. I think it's pretty phenomenal to think about the one that was redeemed, the one paralyzed man that was healed. But I wonder, I wonder about the hundreds, yea, maybe thousands of other paralyzed men in the city that didn't have friends to take him to Jesus. 
I just wonder if he went around and he looked if there were other paralyzed men. And on his own, a paralyzed man is not able to go to the most exciting, most populated area where Jesus is. And I just wonder if, if quite possibly there were men that were laying there or women that were laying there and they were paralyzed or they were crippled or they were lepers or whatever was wrong with them. And they were physically unable to make it to the house where Jesus was. And, and, and that literally they did not, they did not see the miracle. And yet the reason why, we're not talking, the paralyzed guys, we have no record, we have nothing about this man that this man initiated anything on his own. What we have is four friends, four guys that literally picked him up and took him. And when they ran into obstacles, nothing could stop them, even a, a crowd and a roof. And they literally tore through the roof in order to get him in. And I just imagine, be it not for the four guys that were going to fight for him, be it not for them. He would still be on the side of the road. He would still be a paralytic. He would still be unredeemed. According to the story, the very thing that got him there was the determination and the zeal, yay, maybe even the creativity, the bite, the tenacity, the courage. It takes courage. Jesus is teaching to all of them. He's God. Lots of people there. So you're ripping up some guy's house. That's three different people that could rip you to shreds. A, God. <laughs> B, the man's house. And C, the crowd that you're disrupting. <laughs> the courage. The courage of these men. We're going to fight for this guy. We know that Jesus heals. We know that Jesus heals. We know. We've seen it. We've heard it. It's legend. It's true. And on our watch, we have a paralyzed friend. We've got to make sure that he gets before Jesus. We've got to take him to Jesus. We've got to take him to where healing happens. And, and, and I'm just, just thinking about this, and I'm just thinking about our world right now. I'm thinking about hundreds of people in this room, and that's good, and I'm thankful for hundreds of people in the room, but my heart is broken for the thousands the thousands of teenagers that are in our high schools and in this city, and they literally, they do not know Jesus. They may know religion, but they don't know Jesus. They don't believe in God. They aren't redeemed. They haven't said yes to the finished work of the cross. Today, they would not say that they're a Christ follower, and they're laying on the side of the road, destined to an eternity away from God. And I'm just asking the question tonight, where are the men and women? Where are the men and women that will fight. Where are the men and women that literally will not allow the obstacles? Well, he rejected me. Well, I tried, but he wasn't nice. Well, he's mad at God. Well, he, come, well, I, he, he came to this event and he doesn't want to come back. Well, where are those that with tenacity dig their teeth in and say, as far as I'm concerned, I've got a little bit of time left and I want you to know Christ. We're coming up on six, seven weeks left of school. And the window of this year is closing. And how horrible, how horrible for the Christian, for the young man, for the young woman to mostly think about finals, mostly think about, you know, summertime is fun. To mostly think about get through school. That is not the way the redeemed think. The redeemed see it as this is my mission. 
This is my purpose. These people, these friends, I've got this little seven weeks left. I got 35 days left. This is my time. I got 35 days to get this paralyzed, unredeemed man. This, this ninth grader that doesn't know Christ, this 10th grader who's totally, totally, totally against God, this 11th grader that's so hurt and so wounded and so sad and been so abused that they won't even be open to God, whatever is the thing, whatever the reason, we're the ones that take it on their back to pick up. It's labor. Yes, it's labor. But it's hard. Yes, it's hard. But people may make, make, make fun of me. Yes. Welcome to the gospel. Yeah, but I don't want to. Okay, now we're talking. Now that's, that, now that's the core issue. And now we need to talk about if your heart is really broken for your friends or if we're just walking through religious motion. Because the bottom line is, friends, the bottom line is you've got a little window of time to fight, to give it everything, to fight for these people. You, you, you. Jesus. And I'm not saying, I know, I know. Many of you go, well, I don't know if they'll say yes. Neither do I. But are you fighting for them? It's like I have a little boy. His name's Dawson. He's five. And I'm not, and, 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 and right now he's, he, we're, we're playing a lot of baseball and basketball and stuff like that. When we play baseball, I'm the pitcher. He never pitches. He's only a batter. That's all he does. I've tried to ask him to throw it to me. He doesn't do it. He wants to bat. So Every time that I, I, that I pitch it to him, I'm not looking at him and, and irritated when he misses. You know when I'm irritated? If he never swings. If he's so scared, if he's so nervous, that he just never tries, that he never swings the bat. I look, come on, Dawson, you can do it. I don't care. I, I'm, not, I'm not looking at how good, how many times does he connect? How many home runs does he hit? Right now at this phase of where he's at, man, I just want him to swing the bat with everything that he's got. And half of us are sitting here tonight and in timidity, in timidity, we never swing the bat. And we got all kinds of reasons why we don't share our faith, all kinds of reasons why we don't invite people to come to Christ, all kinds of reasons why we're not bold about our faith. And we use all kinds of justification. Well, because I tried this once and I'm kind. And at the core, it's timidity. Jesus isn't looking over and staring at you and going, come on, you got to hit the home run. No, he's the one that will, he'll draw all men unto himself. He's at work in people's heart. He's the one at work. He's doing stuff. But he's asked you to be a faithful witness to proclaim it. And it's your responsibility to swing the bats. It's your responsibility to look someone in the face and tell them about who Jesus is to you. It's your responsibility, literally, to look them in the face and invite them to a small group or to tag or can you pray for them or to walk in the supernatural and say, hey, I, I know that you're, you're, there's this sickness. Can I pray for you? Hey, I know you're walking through this tragedy in your family. Can I pray for you? Hey, whatever is the thing. And I know you go, oh, that's so scary. It's not that scary. I promise. I remember. I know what it's like. I was a junior in high school, and, and we were praying for people like crazy. We were, we were going for it, and God was doing stuff. And I'll never forget getting a letter, a girl that wrote me a letter. She said, hey, calm down. You're saying too much over the announcements about Jesus. 
They had done a, the, 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 the newspaper for the school did this story on Christianity because, because so many Christian things were happening. And, um, and, and this girl, the senior, she, she wrote me this letter. And, and it's was, it was a couple pages. And I remember, I mean, the, 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 her core, she said this. She said, instead of constantly talking about God, Instead of consistently being so vocal about Christ, she said, my motto is love them till they ask you why. I read that and I thought, yeah, love them. Okay, what does love mean? All right, well, I believe in heaven and hell. I believe that Jesus really died on the cross. I believe that hell is real and hell is hot and eternity is a long time and I believe that God is good and I believe that God is faithful and I believe that the best news possible is for, and so ultimately love for them is to tell them the good news of the gospel. And here's what she meant. She meant be nice to them until they ask you why. The funny thing to me was that, to be honest with you, I had no idea this girl was a Christian. I had no clue until I got the letter. Because what she was saying is be nice until they ask you why. But here's my problem. My problem with that methodology, I mean, it's cute, it's sweet, it's nice, but it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. There's no logic to it. It's like fried snow. It's like married bachelors. It's just intelligent Texans. It just doesn't work. Boomer. All right. But listen, I'm sorry, Texans. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, I, that wasn't in my notes. I'm just, I'm just having too much fun up here. Sorry. That was a joke. Sorry. Listen. It just... It, <laughs> I know. I lost it. It, it, it just... It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make sense because at the core, what she's saying there is she's saying, be nice. Be nice till someone asks you why. But if we're honest in high school American culture... How many times have you seen someone walk up to a nice person and say, tell me about your faith? (laughs) Here's my problem. Nobody's asking the nice people. Nobody's asking the sweet people. Nobody's asking the mild little nice people that walk through life just kind of cute, sweet, timid, scared can imagine saying that to Paul. You know, hey Paul, I realize that they just drug you out of the city for proclaiming the gospel and they left you for dead after stoning you. But let me tell you about the wisdom that I've learned from a high school senior about how the gospel works. Stop preaching, man. Just just love them till they ask you. Be sweet, Paul. Just be sweet, you know. Go, go find a wife in Tarsus, come back, and just, just grow some cherry trees. Eat some pita bread. Smile more. Just wait. Maybe someone will come ask. It's fried snow, man. Hey, Peter. Peter. Yeah, I know that you just led the greatest revival ever at Pentecost. And, and 
a few moments, they're gonna come and they're gonna threaten you with prison. Here's a strategy. Here's a strategy, you ready? Next time they come after you, stop preaching and, and smile. <laughs> just, just be sweet. Hey, I got a Christian t-shirt for you. Give them some cookies. <laughs> Go right on through anybody and pick out anybody. Pick out anybody. It's just, it, it, it doesn't make sense because it's not how the gospel operates. Pick Jesus. Jesus, be sweet. They might crucify you. John, John the Baptist, dude, watch it. Watch your head. I mean, you just, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, the nature of the gospel, the good news of the gospel has some offense in it. The good news of the gospel means that we're fearless. Paul prays in Ephesians 6 when he prays that we'd be fearless. The very nature of what we're talking about, the very nature of who we are. It's people that see the vision. We want, Jesus told us to go into the world and make disciples. That means we're going to have to tell them. It means we're going to have to hear the tongue. We're going to have to tell them. You're going to have to proclaim it. Yes, they need to see it with your life. I get that. I want that. I love that. But don't forego the fact that he said, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Love them and preach. Declare it. Be fearless. That's our call. That's our joy. That's our gift. I want you to imagine Jesus. He looks at his friends. He's about to embrace the cross, John 15. John 15 is a great dialogue. It's the upper room. In John 15, 13, Jesus makes a great statement because he's speaking about himself. He says, greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. So I, I would just ask you, here's Jesus, and he's about to literally lay down his life on the cross for the disciples. And then in John 17, he starts praying for his friends. And then he starts to pray for those that his friends would reach. I mean, Jesus was, made a pretty big deal about reaching his friends and loving his friends. And no one, no one has demonstrated greater love than to lay down their life for their friends. But when we think, laying, when we think about reaching our friends, we don't think laying our life down before our friends. When laying our life down for our friends, what we think is, I'll be sweet. I'll be nice till they ask me why and nobody ever asks. Hey, bro, aren't you gonna ask me why my face is radiating more than yours? Hey, dude, hey, man, don't you wanna know why I... (laughs) Friends, the greatest way that you can be a friend is lay down your life for your friends and tell them, tell them, tell them. Use words like my two-year-old. Right now my two-year-old always goes, ah! And I say, Adeline, use words. That's what I feel like telling teenagers right now that don't proclaim their faith, but they think because they come to church and they smile a lot that people are gonna ask them why. No, when it comes to the gospel, Use your words. Know who Jesus is. 
be someone that can articulate the gospel, declare the gospel, and use words, preach it, say it, proclaim it. Yes, proclaim it with your life, but don't use that as your excuse not to proclaim it with your words. Proclaim it, declare it. Fight. You're gonna have obstacles. You're gonna have people mad at you about your joy. You're gonna have obstacle after obstacle. Every, the goofiest obstacles, like I can't get a ride to the Christian gig, to the extreme, I'm an atheist. You're gonna have all those. But your role is to fight, swing the bat. God will be faithful. Some of them will say yes, some of them will say no. You fight. You got a little bit of time, you fight. You fight like a madman. You know why I believe this? Because I've seen it. In fact, it's funny, the weekend before my senior year of high school, senior year, my buds, we were driving in his red Mustang, and uh, I was sitting shotgun because I had a Chevy Celebrity, thus we never drove that. And we're talking, and I started talking about God. He was a real popular kid school. He goes, uh, man, this is our senior year, dude. You're gonna, they're gonna do the God thing our senior year? So, I was like, bro, it's all I know. It's all I am. It's all I'll ever be. I'll be doing the God thing when I'm literally a senior in a nursing home. <laughs> he was like, all right. By the end of this year, I'm gonna have you so drunk. You're gonna be a partier with me. And my goal, he goes, you know my goal? My goal is by the end of this year to have you partying with me, total drunk, most famous drunk in school. And I said, well, here's my goal for you. My goal for you is that by graduation day, you give your life to Jesus. And he laughed and I laughed. We never talked about it again. Until the night before graduation. When I was at his house, about 10 o'clock, we had our cap and gown. We were gonna drive to graduation together that, that next day. He had partied. I had done the Christian thing. And he said, all right, you win. I said, what? He said, uh, let's do it. I said, what? He said, uh, he goes, I want to do the Jesus thing. I said, what does that mean? He goes, oh, come on, man. You know. He said, I want to give my life to Jesus. I wanna, I'm going to do the God thing. What do I do? You got to say a prayer? I, oh, talk to me. I said, all right. So let me tell you what this means. And we prayed together. He got saved. And I won. (laughs) And Jesus won. Jesus won. But it took a fight, 
took boldness, all of it does. And you'll run into conflict after conflict. But we need some men and women. If we're gonna reach, if we're gonna see an awakening in the city, if we're gonna see thousands come to Christ, then we need hundreds that fight like madmen. Stand your feet, let's pray together. If you go count me in, hold out your hands like this and let me pray for you. God, tonight, I'm asking for salvations in the city. Tonight, I'm asking for men and women that are so hurt to find the good news of Jesus through heralders in this room. Tonight, I'm asking for young men and women to focus on one, one man, one woman that doesn't know Jesus. Fight, pray, serve, love like you did. We wanna fight the way that you fought. You are the eternal victor. You have forever defeated the enemy. And we want to spread the victory of Jesus across this city. I pray for hundreds tonight. Let this be a night, Lord God, that we look back at one day and we know that tonight warriors were born. Yes, we'll suffer loss. Yes, we'll be wounded. Yes, we'll be attacked. Yes, there will be dark days, but there will be bright mornings and your mercy is new each day. And you call us to continue to fight. You call us to pray. You call us to serve. You call us to love. And no matter what happens, God, I pray, King Jesus, help us. Grant a supernatural strength in this room. Pray for seventh graders to get a vision. Ninth graders, vision, seniors. The last lap, 35 days. God, I pray that they would fight. They'd dig up roofs. They'd get creative like never before. Put an intentional urgency in us. Oh, God. Oh, God. I want you just to picture for a moment one person that you know not, not a follower of Jesus. Once you've got that person in your head, I want you just to raise your hand. Just one. I know you've got lots of friends that don't know Jesus, but I just want you to picture one. God, I lift up the hundreds of unredeemed, of lost kids that are in the minds of saved kids tonight. And I'm asking God, God, I'm asking, God, I'm asking for the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. 
I'm asking that the, where there are barriers will press through them. God, I'm asking tonight. 500 young men and women in this room, I'm asking for the 500 that don't know Christ. God, give us a great harvest in this city. Give us a harvest beyond what we ever, ever know. Bring him into the kingdom. I ask that you would anoint the lips and the tongues of the men and women in this room. Let them be proclaimers and heralders in the name of Jesus. Awkward moments all over the place. Preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel. Declaring it fearlessly. They're leading intercession on their schools. They're set apart, consecrated under God. And they've got a vision and a mission for their life.